I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. The day is done, the lights are low, the wheels of life are turning slow. And as these visions turn and go, I lay me down to sleep. That's the voice of the late Liam Clancy singing I Knew This Place from the last solo album he recorded. At one stage, Liam, with his brothers Tom and Pat and their friend Tommy Makem, were the four most famous Irishmen in the world and in the US during the 1960s, some of their albums outsold the Beatles. Liam's daughter Siobhan Vicra spoke recently to Jerry McArdle. Jerry, what was the background to the interview? Well, Eileen, I was lucky enough to know Liam and to work with him a little bit during his last years. And when he died in 2009, and it was only a couple of months after my own mother died, which sort of has a bit of an emotional connection for me, but I did a tribute to him on the radio. And after that was broadcast, Siobhan wrote to me and she told me all about her father's death and her own faith. And I just found the letter so incredibly moving. In fact, I've been trying to get her to write a book for ages. But I knew she'd be in Dublin recently, so I grabbed the opportunity to interview her for the Godslot, and this is the result. And, of course, we began, naturally enough, at the beginning. I was born in 1968, so they were up and running when I was born. And I can still remember the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem singing together as a group, but it wouldn't have been... I would have been very young, and it wouldn't have been for very long. I remember... Tommy not being there and uh, Louis Killen was very much part of our childhood and the Fury brothers because they, they kind of stepped in. Finbar and Eddie Fury stepped in for a while as did my uncle Bobby and Louis Killen. They stepped into where Tommy Makem had, had stepped out. So I remember that very well and I remember being at Clancy Brother concerts and the, the buzz and the electric atmosphere and all that but then my father started going solo and that would have been when I was you know sort of four years old and we 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 went we traveled a lot then in those years we lived in Provincetown in Massachusetts we lived in in Calgary we lived in Ring where we were always sort of based where my parents had a house and we used to stay with people in New York and we lived with my aunt in Calgary we lived with people and we moved around and and for those few years that they were my kind of formative years and then I remember Tommy Makem and my dad starting up again and that was even more fun than the Clancy Brothers that was really special really uh, sort of a magical thing that happened when they got together but a lot of things that happened with the group and the Clancy Brothers I wouldn't have been exposed to any of, of, of that kind of thing I didn't know what was going on um, they were just, you know, it's very different. People always used to ask me, oh, what's it like to have a famous father and to be part of all this? But it's not like that when you're at home. When the person is at home with you, they're just your dad. But we did eventually, the sort of preschool, early school years were between Canada and Dungarvan in County Waterford. And then we sort of settled in Canada for a period of about three and a half years. Then we went to New Hampshire for about five and a half years. 
and then we came back to Ring and I finished school in Dungarvan in, in the Mercy Convent where I had started school and I've stayed in Ireland more or less ever since. My father had this idea that he'd better the devil you know <laughs> even though he was a lapsed Catholic himself he wanted us to be brought up with a religion especially the religion that he knew that he was brought up with he was frightened that if we were brought up with no religion when we were older we would start looking for religion and that we would end up involved in some kind of cult like the Moonies or the Hare Krishnas or some we would get sucked into something that would control us so he he wanted us to follow his pattern which was to be brought up Catholic and then lapse but then he got a big shock when we didn't lapse. <laughs> but but he did more than lapse, because I can remember hearing him giving interviews, and he was actually quite angry about it. Um, he thought he was angry because of hypocrisy, lack of integrity, because of abuse. He was never abused himself, but he felt a sense of, you know, things going on, and... And, and he, he says that's why he was angry. Also, just maybe in his day, the controllingness of the clergy and that kind of thing. And he, he just saw a lack of, of practicing what they preached, really. That's why he said he was angry. I believe that most people who get angry with the church, they start to commit some kind of sin in their life that they won't repent of. They, and so they turn it on the church and he did different things in his life that he defended himself as being perfectly fine and that why shouldn't he and it's nobody's business and it's no problem And but I think that he was very guilty about a lot of things mainly to do with the whole aspect of fatherhood and in the whole area of sexuality and I think that rather than say um, I'm wrong or be repentant about it he said I'm dead right and it's the church that's wrong and I think so many people do that he was the most complex person because he was very very ready to admit his faults to to people and to us and yet at the same time he, he he'd He'd admit his faults and failings, and then he'd turn around and say, you know, but sure, what's wrong with that? He claimed, as far as I'm aware, that really the first encouragement he got to go on the stage was from a Christian brother. Yeah. When he recited the Tennyson poem, was it? Yeah. But when he was young, before he went to... Well, even when he was in America for maybe the first year or so... He was very religious, and he loved the church. He loved the Latin Mass, and he sang in the choir. And he told me that he he loved the missions when they came, and he loved retreats that they went on, and he loved the uplifting feeling of that the 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 sacredness of the church and the ceremonies, and he loved the drama of all the ceremonies and the Mass and High Mass and Easter celebrations and all that kind of thing, and he loved it. And he said that he used to feel very close to God and and um, he, he loved his religion. And he also blamed everything changing with Vatican II when the, the priest went to the other side of the altar and faced the people, when they started to bring in folk masses, when they lost the Latin. 
He used to say this, he used to tell us this story that the last day he ever went to confession was also the last day he ever got his hair cut at a barber. And he somehow he linked these two things together. I don't know why. He mentioned touching himself in the confession and the priest said to him, the terminology is called masturbation. And for some reason, that put him off. And he said, I will never go to confession again. But he spoke about God all the time. Not his belief in God, but wondering, wondering, wondering. He was always wondering and we never stopped searching, searching. And recently somebody asked me, what did I learn from him? And I had to think about it for a long time. And um, I realized what I really learned from him was to always keep searching for the truth. Was he happy? I don't think he was genuinely happy, no. I think he had moments of great joy in his life. They were usually when he was outside looking at the world and he had real gratitude. And as he grew older, he had um, great love for his family. That grew more and more. He had great kind of depths of despair as well. And and um, then he battled with alcoholism. So was he happy? I don't know. I don't know. I talk to you about the alcoholism in a minute, but I just want to, while we're sort of on, on the theme almost of repentance, I just want to play something here that uh, he recorded for me a long time ago, which was the hymn to Mary Magdalene by Porrick Pierce. And um, to me, nobody did it like him. For the Schuler Christ is calling thee. O woman of the snowy side, many a lover hath lain with thee, yet left thee sad at the morning tide. But thy lover Christ shall comfort thee. O woman with the wild thing's heart, old sin hath set a snare for thee. In the forest ways forspent thou art, but the hunter Christ shall pity thee. O woman, spendthrift of thyself, spendthrift of all the love in thee, sold unto sin for little pelf, the captain Christ shall ransom thee. O woman that no lovers kiss, Though many a kiss was given thee, Could slake thy love. Is it not for this, The hero Christ shall die for thee? That was Pierce's um, hymn to Mary Magdalene, which I think you'll agree your father read just beautifully. Tell me about the alcoholism. He didn't drink until he was um, in his 20s. 
we have a photograph of him with a pioneer pin, wearing a pioneer pin. I think he wasn't the kind of alcoholic who just the first drink he took, that was it, he was addicted. He had a, a sort of a very complex depressive type personality a lot of the time. He suffered from panic attacks and high anxiety and shyness. And so alcohol was always there with you know, the partying scene and the singing scene in New York and everything else. He had different times, he was a binge drinker, so he had different times when he sort of would hit what you might call rock bottom, but it wasn't really rock bottom. And he did have a few um, visits to uh, clinics when I was very small that I don't remember. But I do always remember him drinking. And I do know for myself and for my brothers and my sister that we recognized that we didn't like him drinking was he was he uh, he wasn't a violent drinker was he or an abusive man was he or was he no he wasn't really no he wasn't he wasn't violent or abusive but he would get very kind of morose well he would get very kind of morose sometimes when he was at home just drinking but a lot of the time it was the part it was party and entertaining and the drinking was part of that mm. um so, but I think over his whole lifetime, his pattern of drinking changed. He went through all different kind of phases, but he did stop drinking for about the last six years of his life because he did hit rock bottom. Then, at, at in his sixties, he hit rock bottom, and it came crunch time. Really, he he had no choice. He was going to die if he didn't give it up. You have a terribly strong faith. I mean. Is that almost a reaction to, to Liam's lack of it? Or, or where does this come from? How did you no. get it? What, what happened to you? My mother's family, my grandmother, was a very religious person. And so was my father's mother, as everybody was at that time. But my, I think my, my grandmother on my mother's side was particularly. And my mother and her sister had visited Medjugorje. And they had been a few times. And my mother had been speaking to me about it. And she was driving me crazy, and I was disagreeing with a lot of what she said to her face. But when I go away to my room, and I even remember writing in my diary one night, Mom has it right. I know the only way to be happy is to pray and fast, like Our Lady says. So I was invited to go to Medjugorje. I, I basically... You know, when I went there, I was living the life that everybody, I was 20 years old, I had a boyfriend, I loved drinking, I was in art college, and I was having a great time, like everybody my age, but I was very unhappy, I know, <laughs> felt like life was very meaningless and empty, and I was a very cynical kind of person too, very anti-church. When I went to Medjugorje, I thought, everybody here is nuts they are completely insane I can't stand this I had a few different things that happened um, you know over the course of the week one of them was that I sort of ha had a had a uh, an incident where I kind of realized that such a thing as evil exists and such a thing as the devil exists which I would have laughed at before that can, can you tell me about the incident or would you rather not do you think people would be interested in hearing I'm it? interested well, the incident was, I was, there was another girl there with me, she was 19, and we had just gone up what they call Mount Krizhevac, which is the, where there's a large uh, concrete cross at the top of the hill, 
and there was a great sense of excitement when we were coming down the mountain. There was a lightning and thunderstorm, and there was a lot of rain. It was very hot. And myself and this other girl just got that giddy sense, you know, of, that young people get of, let's tear away and go a bit wild. So we went to a bar, and there were some men in the bar, and there was one of them particularly good-looking, and they were smoking and drinking, and we were smoking and drinking, and there was a booth there which we sat into, and they sort of surrounded us, and they started telling us that they were the equivalent to the IRA in Ireland, and that they made bombs and different things, and I started to get a bit nervous of them. My friend who was with me was a bit more innocent, I think, than I was, and she was laughing and taking it all in. I started being a bit cold with them and a bit short, and the man reached across and he put his hand over my friend's hands and he said, I like you. And he turned around and he looked directly at me and he said, but I don't like you. And as he looked at me, superimposed over his face, I saw like the face of the devil. And his hand, when he reached across to me, was like the hand of a cockroach coming at me or, you know, like a horrible. And next thing, um, somebody said from behind, Siobhan, and it was my cousin who had been looking for us, and I jumped out over the back of the booth and I let rip the greatest abuse towards my lovely cousin, bad language and everything, and said, who do you think you are looking for me and I'm 20 years old and I can take care of myself and all this. So everyone was really upset with me and I went back to the room and my mother was very upset and she was crying and she was so disappointed in me and so I felt a bit guilty and I went to bed and I started to see every kind of vision in front of me of hell and horrible things and and um, I got very afraid and I knew that my mother had given me rosary beads at the beginning of the trip and she said to me now these are blessed and I said blessed blessed like I don't believe in blessed and I threw them into the wardrobe so I knew they were in there, and I so I got straight to the wardrobe, and I got out the rosary beads. And uh, I started to pray as best I knew how. I didn't really know the rosary very well, because I wasn't taught it very well. I probably didn't listen. So I knew two messages that my mother had said to me. One was, always have the rosary in your hand as a sign to Satan that you belong to me and my son. And then she said, the other one was, decide for Jesus decide for me and my son so I just kept I held the rosary beads in my hands I prayed the rosary and I said decide for Jesus and Mary decide for Jesus and Mary and I had this sense as I was lying in my bed that the bed suddenly was gone from underneath me and my feet were being literally pulled down into hell and I was being shown visions of all the things that I enjoyed that I wouldn't be able to enjoy these anymore if I went with Jesus and Mary that I would have no fun in my life anymore but I just kept saying, I decide for Jesus, I decide for Jesus, I decide for Jesus and Mary. And I prayed my rosary. And I got through the night, and in the morning, I said to my mother, I have to go to confession. And I went to confession, and at Mass that day, at the elevation of the host, I just knew and believed that that was the true presence of Jesus. And I said, I'm going to change my life, and I just... I started very slowly and that was about 24 years ago now and I've been on that journey ever since and every year my faith grows more and more and more and I love 
to study scripture and I love to um, study the catechism and things of the church and I love to pray and pray with my children and I sing all the time and I'm very very happy full of joy my faith is my life I want you to tell me now about uh, about his death and if you get emotional about it don't worry stop oh, I'm have sure a breath, take a breath. I don't think I get too emotional about it I did I when I read it when you I'm, sent me the letter mm. I cried yeah I did <laughs> well I'm one of my dad's biggest fans of his music and I love I know every word of every song I love all his songs I loved his concerts loved everything so there were two songs that were going over and over in my head during the time that he was sick and the first one was it was a Pete Seeger song that went um, one blue sky above us one ocean lapping all our shores one earth so green and round who could ask for more and because I love you I'll give it one more try to show my rainbow race that it's too soon to die and I was singing that one, and that made me happy. And then there's another song, and it was the, the, um, a version of The Parting Glass. It's called The Journey's End. It says, um, I sit beside the road and weep For all the songs I did not sing And promises I did not keep And that was such a, you know, such a sorrowful that that idea of the songs I did not sing and the promises I didn't keep and his life was coming to an end and it was just oh it was, just, it was too sad for me to even take it but anyway that was the song that was that was going over in my head so anyway he went to hospital and um he was very sick and you know we knew that he he wasn't going to live very long and it was his breathing you know he had um he had pulmonary fibrosis. The priests had visited him, visited him a few times, and they had offered him the last rites and things, but he told them to go away. And but he did, he did really make a friendship with this lady, Sister Margaret. So and she really listened to him and understood him. But as he was going through that process, when he started, his breathing started to to. To, to get very heavy and his chest started to heave Sister Margaret was, was beside him and she said the most beautiful things I'll never forget she said first of all she told him that his mother and father were waiting there for him and that his brothers were, were there and then she said something which I don't know if she knew how poignant it was because he suffered terribly from stage fright and anxiety and he was very fearful going into death because he didn't have that faith he didn't know what he he was facing into and he she said to him Liam it's just like stepping onto the stage just take just take one step into the lights and you know it was lovely and she said this is your time Liam this is your final performance now and it was lovely it really and he but he reminded me of he had written another he had written a, a poem near the end of his life where he talked about being um, on the, the abyss. He says, how do you feel when your back is to the wall and your toes are on the brink of the abyss just before the fall? And 
that's what he reminded me of. He was like a person who was standing on the edge of a cliff, who just braced himself and said, I have to take this step. Uh, he was he was like someone who was sort of in control almost of 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 saying I'm not going to be taken I'm going to make I'm going to step myself which was just like him you know he always had to do everything himself for himself and when i'm done with wandering i'll sit beside the road and weep for all the songs i did not sing and promises I did not keep. Siobhan Vikra speaking to Jerry McCardle about her father, the late Liam Clancy. Next Friday, our guest on the Godslot will be Ian Paisley Jr. Agus Gudi Shin, Banachtear Vigilic.